Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? Correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I remember from the 1980s G.I. Joe cartoon was whenever, say, a helicopter exploded, you would always see a poof of smoke and then a parachute come out the back, making sure you knew everyone was okay because, you know, it was a kid's show. But in this movie, they literally destroy London and everyone living in it. What do you think their parachute budget was then? A billion dollars? Tim, I think you're being super critical. (sighs) Whatever happened to our good, wholesome Saturday morning cartoons? Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. There are a lot of movie podcasts out there, but only one where you have a team of experts watching movies about nuclear weapons and then needlessly overanalyzing them. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast that has worked on and studied nuclear issues for years. I'm also that annoying friend who can't help himself but comment on something that just isn't portrayed accurately in a movie. Fortunately, my co-host here doesn't let these things bother him. He's a big picture guy. You know, someone who's able to see the forest and not just the annoying nuclear trees. This is Joel, the well-intentioned friend of Tim who knows nothing about nuclear issues, but I like a good movie or TV show. And uh, after a number of years, I can say I'm the one friend who's been able to survive actually sitting next to Tim watching these movies and uh, living to tell the tale. I appreciate your continued friendship, uh, especially through today, where we watched G.I. Joe Retaliation, a 2013 live-action action movie sequel to the 2009 movie G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. Joel, why did you pick this movie today? Well, I thought it was especially timely. Um, right now, we're kind of at peak, maybe not peak Marvel, because we certainly have a number of years to go, but as far as this 2016 summer season of movies, we're in the thick of Marvel or comic book hero movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we had Batman versus Superman. Last week, we had Captain America Civil War come out. This week, we had uh, the new X-Men movie come out with uh, Apocalypse. So... I thought it was funny as we were going over potential titles to walk through. Wouldn't it be fun to kind of um, take a second and and shine a light or or go back, shine a light on one of the franchises out there that has at least one foot in the comic book universe but maybe doesn't get the same level of respect or admiration out there, uh, at least beyond the the core supporters of the G.I. Joe franchise? Which is you. I believe you're the president of the G.I. Joe fan club. Uh, at least the uh, Washington D.C. chapter here, because you grew. It's up- very political in D.C., Tim. You know, there's a lot of politics. A couple of Frank Underwoods in that group. Probably. Yeah, who gets who gets to be Duke? Who gets to be Roadblock? <laughs> right. Who's who's stuck with uh, Sergeant Slaughter? Well, there. So there's sounds like there's going to be some more sequels coming out. Just like all of those comic book movies you mentioned earlier, seems like Hasbro, the toy company, wants G.I. Joe and Transformers to form a cinematic universe where you have a bunch of different movies coming together. I think. Micronauts and a few other Hasbro toy lines are all getting together. So it sounds like they want to get in the same uh, cinematic universe game as everybody else. I certainly don't hold it against Hasbro and some of these other perhaps um, – I don't want to say less regarded but other franchises that may not have had the, the same level of success to think about how they could reboot it. I mean 
if they can reboot Spider-Man as many times <laughs> as they have uh, and still seem to to generate fan interest, I you know I am certainly a fan of GI Joe. So at the last couple movies, they haven't done the greatest job. But if someone came up with a good storyline, um, you know, I'd give it another shot. Well, the one we're talking about today, um, I certainly wish we could have ended the series on uh, because I was not a big fan. No offense to your G.I. Joe fandom, but we'll get into that later. Uh, But the one we watched today came out in 2013. Uh, It was directed by John Chu, who has helmed such classics as Step Up to the Streets, Step Up 3D, and not one, but two Justin Bieber documentaries. There's a lot of content. Mm -hmm. But the guys that wrote it... They also wrote Deadpool and Zombieland, so not not too bad in terms of the comic book and the action genre. So they clearly are they're still they're clearly pretty good. And I'll also note they also created my favorite and the only reality TV show I ever watched, Joe Schmo Show, which is a <laughs> reality show where someone the main character doesn't know he's in a reality TV show. Like everyone else are actors, and they're playing through all the tropes of reality TV. But so it's a kidnapping. It essentially is a kidnapping. So it's this. Ridiculous, unintentional comedy. Um, who's in this movie? I think a pretty big cast. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun cast, uh, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the cast. I think a little bit later because, as we've talked about some of the comic book movies out there, there's a really unique overlap with so many other franchises and superhero TV shows and movies. Uh, as you go down the the cast list, I think most people remember this movie for. Uh, the the role that Dwayne the Rock Johnson, although I think officially he's just titled or, or um, described as Dwayne Johnson, so I guess this is one of the movies where he kind of put aside his professional wrestling mantle. Well, he's all, he, for... he will always be the Rock to me, right? So uh, although he got rid of the the Rock uh, title, he traded that for the role of Roadblock in this movie. A Rock would make a pretty good Roadblock, right? Exactly. Uh, and we had some interesting folks playing um, others like Snake Eyes, played by Ray Park, who you may recall from a number of different uh, movies that are near and dear to uh, fans out there between the Star Wars movies to X-Men. Another cinematic – yeah, another cinematic universe with uh, Darth Maul. Right, exactly. Uh, Adrienne Palicki as Lady J. We have Bruce Willis as General Joseph Colton, who kind of harkens back to the initial or original G.I. Joe days. Channing Tatum playing a, a very brief role as Duke uh, before the franchise seems to pivot. Uh, he was a bigger guy in the first movie, right? Right, right. Definitely the kind of the main hero in the first G.I. Joe movie, uh, which we'll get into. That, so those are all the good guys, but what about the bad guys? Well, we've got you, – you don't have a complete G.I. Joe story without a laundry list of heroes and a laundry list of bad guys. You know, you've got uh, people reprising their role, you know, Storm Shadow – uh, Ray Stevenson as Firefly, another person who previously played a comic book hero playing mm-hmm. the Punisher, uh, Frank Castle, in, in one of the previous uh, Punisher movies, Punisher? which actually is <laughs> Tim's favorite Punisher movie. Movie, not not TV show, but the Punisher war zone is over-the-top fun. Yep. Uh, we have Arnold uh, Vosloo as Zartan, who is impersonating the President of the United States, played by Jonathan Price. Yep, Jonathan Price right now, he's doing great on Game of Thrones. He's the uh, High Sparrow, so he's like a religious leader. This one, he's a political leader. He's very good at playing conniving leaders. Uh, And then uh, we have James Carville playing himself, uh, which I thought uh, was interesting that he made it to 
near the top of the credits of all the people who are in the movie. Well, there, but, there's uh, not enough CGI budget to be able to make someone look like James Carville. Right. I should note, though, that James Carville was not in the laundry list of the uh, villains. Mm. Although I, I wouldn't have been surprised if he went. He's like, you know, I'd, 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 I'd like to play a Cobra commander. You know, but... Well, it's like in, in that Marvel movie where uh, the senator comes out and says, Hail Hydra, out of nowhere, maybe... James Carville out of nowhere will be like, Cobra, la, 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 la. Yeah, as far as we know, he still survived this movie, so he could come back in, uh, in a potential third movie. So, so this movie came out uh, in 2013. I know it had a great trailer. Uh, I remember that one in particular. We linked to that in our, on our Twitter page, which is at Nuclear Podcast, and on our, as well on our Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. I remember this trailer. We saw it. We, we had both seen together the terrible 2009 movie. And then we're like, G.I. Joe, that's too bad. They couldn't get the live action right. Then we saw this trailer. It's got The Rock. It's got Jay-Z music playing. There's ninjas on the side of a cliff. That all sounds pretty good. It was a. It did poorly with critics and Tim, uh, but it did a pretty good hit with the box office, right? Yeah, just for some comparison. So if you go back to Rotten Tomatoes, it currently has a 28% approval rating. Ooh. Not so great. That's Batman versus Superman territory. Clearly in rotten territory. Although if you the – the funny thing is if you go back and you look at the first G.I. Joe movie, that actually has a higher rating at 35%. That's crazy. So I, I would actually go back and, and dispute that as far as if you had to compare the movies. I think Retaliation, the second movie we're talking about today, is clearly the, the superior – uh, art form between of, of the two um but <laughs> but yeah as you as you said it was actually at least temporarily a hit with fans and moviegoers as far as shelling out uh, dollars to go see it the movie had a budget of 130 million the movie made 376 million worldwide and then it opened at the top of the box office in the weekend it came out so not the first time that a movie, especially one geared more towards science fiction, fantasy, comic book fans, has has done well at the box office, but not so much with the critics. Uh, maybe we've been spoiled as of late as far as movies that, that go over well with both critics and mm -hmm. fans alike. Um, but this was definitely one that w harkens back to the earlier days of the comic book movies, where it was more for fans than critics. Before we go in, I know we talked a lot of, already, but before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of the plot here, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about G.I. Joe historically. Like, where did it come from? Because I only really know it as a cartoon that I thought was a cartoon, and then they made toys based on the cartoon. But I had that completely backwards. I wasn't really a G.I. Joe fan growing up. I was more a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon and toy fan. So Which you, you weren't, the, though. From the perspective of their marketing department, is probably mission accomplished, mm -hmm. if you thought it was in that. Oh, same thing for me as well. So so G.I. Joe's, right? So I, we were reading a little bit about the history of this, and there's a great article that we'll link to in our show notes um, from the website Mental Floss from 2015. does a really good job of laying out the history of G.I. Joe. And I, I think this is really worth talking about really quickly. And... Again, I'm not the expert G.I. Joe enthusiast here, as we had Gabe on last episode to talk about Star Trek um, and his expertise on that. I would please defer to you when it comes to at least the cartoon series um, and what that was done. But So a toy line started in the 60s. Um, it was 13 inches, like big toys. These were like action figures. Uh, they weren't called dolls. They were called action figures because you had to be able to sell them to, to boys. Um, they were like the uh, rivals to large Barbie dolls. But – 
they were pretty generic. They were just general adventure guys. They were called G.I. Joe, but the people that they fought... They're basically like, army guys. They're army guys, but, but they're the enemies that they fought, and they were called the... I think it was like the intruders. They were cavemen from outer space. Not Cobra, not any sort of real villain, not a terrorist, but generic characters like... It's one of the people that I saw, which is interesting given our, our podcast... Um, they wanted to make a toy for Steve Austin, the $6 million man. You know, Steve Austin, if we can, we can repair him, we have the technology, that guy. Um, they couldn't get the rights to it, so they just copied it, and they made a guy named Atomic Man, whose real name was Mike Powers, but he had essentially the same abilities as the $6 million man. His special weapon, if you top the top of his head, there was a button where he had an atomic flashing eye, which I think was just like a, a laser pointer that you can scare and play with your cats. But so they made that guy. But then later in the 1970s, the big oil crisis took place and the price of plastic went through the roof. So instead of 13 inch figures, they're like kids really days these days would really like three and three quarters inch toys. But they were pretty cool. Right. I mean, did you have many of those toys? I know that their their hands could move around. They were like very bendable. Uh, I did. I I had at least some of the toys. But I mean, the the funny thing to keep in mind is that. you know, a lot of the development of G.I. Joe's happened well before the animated series mm-hmm. came about. And so, you know, once it got to the animated cartoon, um, you know, they already had kind of an existing franchise of toys and, and fan base. And so, you know, me as a little kid growing up in my early days in the, the mid to late 80s, um, I mean, G.I. Joe was where it was at. Well, before they were able to do the cartoon series that you love so much, they had to do something else because at the the FCC at the time didn't allow toy companies to make essentially commercials for children without these all these really intricate rules. Or they couldn't do a cartoon series because they thought <laughs> correctly that it was just going to be a commercial, a 30-minute commercial for the toy line. Although can I say I, I thought it was interesting reading and learning about that when – I mean I vividly remember – all those cartoons – not cartoons, commercials, I should hmm. say, in between the cartoons. It's funny that I'm conflating the two now. Um, whether it was Serial or some Nerf Master Blaster or, you know, what have you, that, mm-hmm. you know, they have no problem with you marketing, you know, 20 minutes worth of 30-second commercials. But if you want to do one commercial for 20 minutes, well, then that becomes a problem. Oh, I can't do that. Well, they wanted to do something like that, but they couldn't. So instead, they, they actually called up Marvel, Marvel Comics. And said, well, there are rules against doing commercials for toys, but there are no rules about doing commercials for comics. So why don't we make a comic about the toy so when kids buy the comics, there will be ads for the toys inside of it. Or the comic itself will be an ad for the toys. Now, this is a first of our series of connections between Marvel Comics and G.I. Joe and specifically the the movie we watched today. They called Marvel up and said, "We we need an idea for a comic book series. Well, they had this thing. This storyline set up, like storyboarded out and had a few ideas for this force called Fury Force, which was supposed to be Nick Fury, the guy Sam Jackson plays in all the Marvel movies. His son was going to lead this elite fighting force called Fury Force, but didn't really work well. They just put it on the shelf when Hasbro called. Why duplicate your work? They just took it right back off the shelf and gave it to... Hasbro, and that was like the idea we have today of G.I. Joe's came from a disregarded Marvel's comic book, which I think is pretty interesting. I had no idea that was the case. So they made the comic books. It was very popular. They were able to sell toys off of that, but they still wanted to do a cartoon series. And it wasn't until 
President Ronald Reagan campaigned and came in on wanting to deregulate a lot of American industries and told the FCC, hey, stop doing this. Stop having all these rules and regulations. And the TV companies and the toy companies all lobbied Congress and the FCC and were able to reverse those rulings. And then a couple years later, the top 10 toy lines all had cartoons supporting them every single day. So I guess I can thank the Ronald Reagan and G.I. Joe for allowing me to have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon uh, to be able to sell those toy lines. Or I don't know the exact storyline of the sequencing of that, but I know G.I. Joe in particular was very popular, had the TV show. Um, it wasn't until later on when kids basically like myself like Ninja Turtles more that the cartoon uh, collapsed a little bit in terms of its popularity as well as the, the toy line itself. But it went pretty strong. It went until like the mid-90s and then took a little while off. And then 2009, the live-action movie brought G.I. Joe back into the mainstream, which is where we're at today. So before we get started with the discussion about the movie, spoilers are ahead. Uh, we are going to go through the movie kind of point by point so we can kind of have our technical discussion on nuclear issues later. So if you've not seen G.I. Joe Retaliation, uh, you might want to hit pause at least for 90 minutes or so, check out the movie, and then come back to us uh, so that we can walk through. So warning, spoilers ahead. Or at least there are some YouTube videos of the big nuclear summit scene um, that we'll link to that if you want to just watch that and then hear me complain about it and get into the minutia of it, that's one way to spoil it for yourself without having to sit through this entire movie. Another option. Yeah, I thought, you know, as a movie itself, I can certainly understand people who have problems with it, but I thought after what I thought was a legitimately bad movie, both for general film purposes, but also for G.I. Joe purposes, as far as like what is a quintessential mm -hmm. G.I. Joe plot, the first movie was not so great. I thought the second movie, Retaliation, actually did try to reflect kind of what was a you know, a classic type G.I. Joe storyline as far as these fantastical technologies coming out, world domination, of course, being in the cards for mm. Cobra. Um, yeah, I think that's way me where I'm, you know, I, I like the action sequences in this movie quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, there were some really unique things in this, uh, some clever use of history, which we'll talk about later on in this podcast. I just maybe couldn't connect it to what G.I. Joe was supposed to be in its original form. So maybe I just didn't get that part of it. So I'm willing to concede that. So as far as the plot line, we move into this second phase of the GI Joe franchise with Duke played by Channing Tatum, uh, leading the, the GI Joe elite unit. Uh, we start out the movie with them performing a, uh, uh, a covert operation in Korea. Um, shortly before they North, are North or South. Um, good. Well, I believe it's a right. Well, it's funny. I think it was right on the uh, the DMZ. Uh, they okay. were they were, I believe, rescuing a political prisoner or somebody mm. who was trying to defect. Uh, and it was funny. They they go right up to the fence. They cut through the fence, and then they find the prisoner basically thirty feet away <laughs> from the fence. And I was thinking, well, that's pretty convenient as far as like breaking into North Korea. You just have to kind of hop the fence, and you can hop right back. But. Uh, but no nuclear war between North and South Korea because of that, because okay, I good. guess they were so covert. Well, I asked because this movie has uh, – whether it was – I asked whether or not it was North or South because then the next mission the Joes go on is invading, uh, you know, supposedly an ally of the United States in Pakistan. Right, right. Yeah, so another country that they feel free to uh, just kind of take a chopper and head over and, and, and break 
sovereign borders. Uh, so we find out – so they're, after their Korean mission, uh, they find out that the – I believe they call them just the president of Pakistan or the head of state. I, I can't remember if they got into the details. But um, basically the, the head of Pakistan is murdered. Uh, Pakistan is falling into chaos and the Joes get recruited by the government to um, uh, to secure the nuclear weapons – uh, that that Pakistan has because of fear of loose nukes. Right, looks uh, like it was taken over. Hands. Yeah, taken over by some sort of jihadist group. Right now, the interesting thing, and this is where I feel this is one of the few connections to the first movie that we have, is that the GI Joes were not actually sent by the good guys, even though they are sent by the government. Hmm. Because we recall from the first movie that Zartan has uh, essentially gotten this. Um, uh, form-shifting technology, these nanomites, if I remember their name correctly. I love it, nanomites. It's like nano already means small. So then you have right. like nanomites. It's super small. Right, super small, yeah. But so basically he can change his entire um, uh, physique presence so he can shapeshift. He actually, in the first movie, he kidnapped the president of the United States because if you're going to steal someone's identity, why not go all out? Go big. Yeah. Uh, I mean you could dominate the world or you could do it secretly. Uh, so he's actually playing the president of the United States, uh, who's played in by the real life person Jonathan Price. So it's one actor playing a character who then takes the form of another character. That's so, that's very deep. It's, it's that's very, probably very meta. Very meta. Uh, yeah. Probably was a good acting challenge for right. for Jonathan Price. Like multiple the, motivations. The know? guy who actually plays Zartan, I think, did his entire scenes maybe in a, an afternoon. Seems like he only had like two images on the screen, right? And probably half of them were three D, you know, computer generated mm-hmm. stuff. Now, so, Zartan's from the comic books and the in the cartoon series. Did he do a lot of these fake out type deals? Seemed like he's like Mystique from the X Men. Yeah, he, he had that that role. So he they would do a lot of um, you know covert operations. They would break into you know because because GI Joe the, the series I felt like every other series or every other episode they were breaking into some government compound to steal either some advanced technology which they're going to use as a weapon or stealing some kind of um, precious metal or precious chemical or or some kind of compound that they can then turn into a weapon or turn into a you know time travel device or something Co- like that. Cooper does not like to do their own work. So like they like to take advantage of other things. Yeah, although I mean I will point out between the cartoon series and the comic books you actually see Cobra being a real-life organization, hmm. much, uh, very much unlike what you see in Spider-Man or all these other movies where it's just this one-off um, evil villain who's kind of lurking somewhere in some hideout uh, wanting to take on Spider-Man. Cobra became this terrorist organization, almost this shadow state. Uh, I mean you could almost liken it to ISIS to, to pull out a very timely uh, topic today of – you know this rogue group uh, that is certainly doing these very kind of one-off uh, violent activities, but they very much have this organization to them. They have uh, – if you followed the cartoons and the comic books, they had established channels of uh, black market activities where they're generating millions, billions of dollars. Because mm. if you're buying all these tanks and building all these yeah. cyborgs and all these shadowy underground forts, you know you need a decent revenue to uh, – actually pay for it. It makes sense because in this movie, we'll talk about this at the end of the plot discussion, but they launch up seven satellites into space. Right. And they have to have a little bit of money to be able to do this. You, know, you need some rocket fuel. Uh, so 
they have the president of the United States as one of their assets. So what does the, the president of the United States order the Joes to do? So they, they, they ordered them to Pakistan to basically have a number of different G.I. Joe groups break into various parts of Pakistan, uh, essentially steal nuclear weapons uh, or make sure they're not falling into the hands of terrorists. Uh, they're able to do that. However, right as they finish that mission, they find out that they've been double-crossed by the, the president who uh, essentially uses their um, securing the nuclear weapons – to actually announce to the public that the G.I. Joes have actually tried to steal the nuclear weapons, that uh, they have actually betrayed the American people. And so he says he basically terminated the G.I. Joe program with extreme prejudice, I believe is the quote in his uh, mm -hmm. teleconference. Effectively, he sends out um, this new group that he's assembled, this Cobra group, uh, to essentially kill all the G.I. Joes. Now, I thought at the end of the first movie that Cobra as an organization was at least pretty well known amongst the public. I know right. several characters in the movie at the beginning reference the existence of Cobra. So the fact that he names his elite force that's supposed to be on the side of the United States Cobra seems a lot like when you name like your special ops force. Yeah, I sent in our special ops force ISIS or our special team Al-Qaeda to be able to go take out this group. Ignore the name. Ignore the name is just it's a, it's a draft name. Right. We're working on it. You know, it's an it. animal. You know, there are lots of cobras out there. You know, it's an, an acronym. Cobra. We're the we're the cool, stealthy, patriotic cobra. Mm -hmm. you know? Anyways, so uh, they think uh, the president thinks or Zartan. I'm just going to call him Zartan from now on because I think that'll be easier to uh, distinguish the characters. Zartan thinks they've killed all the Joes. Uh, at that same point in time, we have Storm Shadow who breaks into a uh, – He's the evil n evil ninja in white. He's the evil ninja in, in white, yep, uh, working with the, the, the Cobra folks. He breaks into a high-security prison. He breaks out Cobra, uh, Cobra Commander, um, who is no longer played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> which I thought was one of the most interesting casting decisions of the first movie. They move on uh, to some unknown plan that they already have in, in the works. In parallel with that, we go back to where the G.I. Joes were in Pakistan. We find out that actually um, some G.I. Joe members have survived. Uh, Duke was killed. Roadblock, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or just Dwayne Johnson, has survived. He is the highest ranking person of the three or four of them that, that survived. So he is now leading them. So they realized that the only person who could have ordered that strike was basically the president of the United States. So they realized that there's something going on in the highest levels of government. They don't know what. So in order to get help, they go back to the D.C. area, actually, funny enough, mm -hmm. and they rely on General Colton, played by Bruce Willis, who we learn kind of slowly is like one of the original G.I. Joes or the main G.I. Joe character who's kind of in retirement at that point living in i guess suburban maryland or something like that <laughs> um so they lay low for a while uh at the same time uh we have snake eyes who comes into the picture there's a lot of parallel activities mm -hmm. going on which which uh makes for an interesting narrative because they blame the assassination of the pakistani president on snake eyes yep, yep. and then that's how i guess snake eyes they put him in jail in this the chain jail where Cobra Commander was, but it's Storm Shadow, not Snake Eyes, because for some reason they never took off Snake Eyes' helmet, um, which seemed like something you would do at some point before you bring the guy to jail. Although I guess that could be that they were Cobra Commander people that brought him to jail. But 
That's that. That's how that all got set up. Right. And so you, you see Snake Eyes. You know, he wasn't in the the group that was ambushed in Pakistan. He's kind of on his own. Unsurprisingly. He goes after Storm Shadow, and you learn from the first movie there's this kind of historic rift, a rivalry between the two going back to their childhood days. So uh, Snake Eyes going after Storm Shadow, aided by uh, Jinx, who... Another Marvel connection, because the actress that plays Jinx also plays Elektra on the new Daredevil TV show. Now, I I think now is a good time to run through this. So we have Ray Stevenson, who plays Punisher in Punisher Warzone. We have Adrienne Palaki, who is an actress that plays a character on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. We have Ray Parker, who was Toad in the X-Men movie. I think it was the first X-Men movie. Correct. Uh, we have Jinx, who um, was played by an actress that was Electra and Daredevil. And then even the Secret Service agent, the head Secret Service agent, is the, the same actor who plays Melvin, the guy that makes Daredevil's costume in Daredevil. So, well, uh, but yeah, there's so many Marvel connections in this, and I think that that's, it's pretty interesting. I know they started with the, the comic book connection, but I don't, I don't know how that all translated itself in the universe back to all the same actors being in the same movies and TV shows. So Snake Eyes and Jinx, they're going after Storm Shadow. They're eventually able to track him down to this kind of shadowy fort uh, settlement in uh, in the mountains. They have kind of an epic battle scene where they, they abduct Storm Shadow. Uh, after a fight with a bunch of ninjas on the, the cliff of, of the mountain. That scene was pretty cool. I'll give him that. It was a pretty cool scene, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I which I learned was actually shot in a NASA warehouse that was used to test rockets. And hmm. so basically it was this really tall warehouse building, and they created a giant green screen uh, wall so that they could suspend everyone as they're, like, flying around. And then they build the, the mountains in uh, computer... Graphics later. Oh, so. That is pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. They so weren't, they weren't actually dangling on the side of the Himalayas. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have the budget for it. So they're able to capture Storm Shadow. They they kind of. I'll skip some of the backstory, but they they realize that Storm Shadow wasn't exactly as evil as they once thought he was. That he hadn't killed the the Hard Master, which was the master that Snake Eyes and and Storm Shadow had both served at one point. But who did? Well, we find out that it was da da da. You know, uh, who would have thought it was Zartan again, posing uh-huh. as a, uh, a a very much larger person, you know, in terms of weight uh, than than he actually has. So I guess his shape shifting technology also a- allows him to add another fifty pounds or something. But well, it's like in the movie Face Off when uh, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta switch bodies, and then they switch back, and John Travolta is clearly a much larger man than Nicolas Cage. Right. But at the end of it, the scientists, I guess, put more fat back in. Right, him. It's like you couldn't have, uh, you know, taken those love handles off. A couldn't just, bit. yeah, couldn't just leave that, leave that hobby. You know, but Zartan, Zartan sounds awful. I saw one of the scenes. He keeps the president of the United States in a bunker, which I thought was outside of the White House. It's like, but it's not. It's like outside of maybe Camp David. They just call it a presidential retreat. But that's where the real president, Martha's Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard, being kept. But it's he's being kept in, you know, another atomic nuclear weapons connection. It's in a fallout shelter. Uh, so I guess mm-hmm. it's one of those things. Although it just looks like a wine cellar, not really so good for, for maybe uh, a full on a, a presidential target nuclear attack. But right. I also, it, also I would have thought, you know, after like the third or fourth time he goes out there to like visit the wine cellar or bunker, they'd be like, "What? Why? Why is the president going out there like every couple of days? He's just, uh, just playing golf out there, you know." 
But this is cool. So the reason you know it's a fallout shelter is because in the back of that scene behind President Zartan, you can see a poster that reads, You can protect yourself from radioactive fallout. Get the facts from your local civil defense director. It's actually a real poster from um, the days when civil defense was a big deal, how it defend a population against a nuclear attack. We know we know about duck and cover drills, but these were a series of things during the Cold War that helped convince people that a nuclear war wouldn't be as bad as you think. You could protect yourself against nuclear fallout. So half the poster in the movie, the top half image, is actually from a real poster. So I'll give the props uh, crew some props on that one. I like that little detail that was something I did not expect from a G.I. Joe movie. It really uh, adds to the charm for the nuclear enthusiasts watching. Um, I'm glad I was awake for that part. Right. <laughs> so Storm Shadow, they figure out, is not so evil. He is, he essentially says he's no longer going to be with the Cobra folks anymore. He gives up what is effectively Cobra Commander's plan. And I'll go quickly through this last part because I know Tim is going to go through this in, in more detail. But they the Joes find out that the that Zartan, playing the, the president, uh, because of using what happened in Pakistan with loose nuclear weapons, decides to convene an atomic summit of the remaining eight nuclear powers. So it's you know the United States, Great Britain, China, the the typical folks. To Although talk- also Israel. Yeah. So I guess in this world, Israel, which there are reports that they have nuclear weapons, but they have certainly not declared publicly that they do. Either in this universe, they just got called out and said, "Yeah, okay, we'll come to your summit," or. They just happened – we just happened to exist in a world where they never were an opaque nuclear power, that they were always right out right out there in the public. Right. So they're at this atomic summit. All the powers, the, the heads of state with their you know, entourages, they're all sitting in that you know, classical circular desk. And the, where, where, where is this being held at? This is something that's pretty – another one of those we, – we could do this with our um, historic landmarks or Civil War battlefield uh, podcast where we nitpick those things. Because I'll it, let you take care of that. It's one. Supposedly, it's supposed to take place in Fort Sumter, which Fort was Sumter. the location yep. of the first shots fired between the North and the South during the Civil War. It's in. It's off the. You know, the off of South. It's in South Carolina. It's in uh, the Bay. Essentially, it's out. It's an island out in the ocean where you have to be able to pass past it to go to Charleston. Uh, I went there a couple of years ago. It takes several hours, maybe at least an hour's boat ride, to get out there. And it's just desolate. It's a very tiny island. It's got just room for a fort and pretty much nothing else. It was a really cool place to be. But in the movie, it's this gigantic place. And it's not only is it not an island, it has a bridge leading to it. So it's like half land and there's also like a freeway coming into it. Yeah. In in real life, it was actually Fort Pike in Louisiana. Ah, okay. So they thought, well, we'll call it Fort Sumter, but we'll just use another fort. It doesn't, it doesn't make much gonna, sense. Who's going to recognize it? It doesn't make any sense to me. That was one of those odd choices. Why I have to make it Fort Sumter? But I think there's a reason for it. And I'll mention that once you you go through the plot. Okay. So, so Zartan has everyone convened. And then there's this very outlandish scene, which Tim will methodically go through, which I'm looking forward to, where he effectively proposes complete disarmament, whereas the other leaders were saying, well, we'll cut our nuclear stockpile by 50%, for example. All of the leaders, unsurprisingly, balk at the idea of completely getting rid of their nuclear weapons. And so Zartan, again, as the president, says, well, we will consider your nuclear stockpiles now an act of war. 
and we are going to attack you with our nuclear weapons. He then proceeds to fire via his nuclear briefcase uh, all of the U.S. nuclear stockpile, or at least we assume they've fired every it single sounds missile. Like, I think it's everything. It's implied that it's everything. Everything, everything. in the U.S. stockpile. And the kitchen at, sink. At, all at once. Right. Like one button, push it. Everything's up in the air. And they conveniently, at Fort Sumter, have some upgraded technology with giant flat-screen TVs showing all of the missiles being shot up out of submarines, out of uh, military bases, battleships. Everything. Everything. Everything is going out. So the world leaders, they're naturally freaking out. They've realized that they're they're, uh, now seeing the nuclear apocalypse happening. And because of this, they then choose to retaliate and say we're going to fire all of our nuclear weapons everybody everybody pulls out their briefcase their nuclear suitcase right which has little flags that indicate which country they are right. and i love it each you know each uh, they make sure to like zoom in on each briefcase with the giant words of like launch arm uh deactivate but in their respective languages just to let people know oh yeah this is these are all the different countries but i thought it was interesting that only the united states launches the nuclear weapons and yet they all proceed to launch all of their nuclear weapons seemingly at all of the other countries yes. but it, that was funny because you have you know missiles coming from russia and where are they going they're going to france uh, and among the other countries, and the French president sitting there like, hey, what are you doing? Is that crazy guy over there? I didn't do anything to you. What are you doing, holding a grudge from something? Yeah. I just wonder, yeah, maybe they're just, well, I've got the opportunity. I mean, we're all going to die anyways. So. I never I never liked you anyways. Right. Uh, and, I, and I know you'll talk about this before, but I, I just wanted to highlight the funny fact that they have all the leaders, and then they have, I, I guess they don't identify who it is, but then they have the head of North Korea there, who's mm-hmm. just kind of like hanging out as well, but. Anyway, so all the missiles are in the air. Basically, I think they said, oh, you've got three minutes to basically plan for the end of the world. While the president is sitting there, while Zartan is playing on his phone, playing Angry Birds. Angry Birds, right. While all the different entourages are freaking out, making calls furiously. And then Zartan stands up and says, we're going to get rid of our nuclear weapons. And he presses, again, a single button on the nuclear briefcase for the United States Basically uh, causes all of the nuclear weapons to blow up. Mm-hmm. Basically, um, uh, auto destruct sequence, I guess, for all of, all of the missiles. And then all of the world leaders realize that there's no threat, and so then they one by one cause their nuclear weapons to, you know, they hit their one single button on the briefcase, which causes every single nuclear weapon to blow up. Not detonate, but just be explode, you know, yeah, explode before actually delivering their nuclear. Um, package. And then Zartan says, welcome to a nuclear-free world. Right. Oh, that was pretty easy. That's yeah, not bad. I don't right. know why it's taken President Obama all eight years to right. follow his dream of a nuclear-free world when it just took a few seconds. Right. One thing I'd like to quickly note about the venue for the nuclear summit that Zartan hosts with all the other countries, the uh, Atomic Eight, as he calls it, although that sounds a lot like a, the P5, which are the five countries that are allowed legally to have nuclear weapons under the the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But in that venue, the Fort Sumter, which was the place where the Civil War started in terms of a shooting war, there was no one that died in that uh, particular battle due to exchange of fire. Someone died and a horse died because it was an accident uh, with some munitions. But no one actually died during the exchange of gunfire, which is an interesting parallel to the actual scene where all – of these 16,000 nuclear weapons were fired into the air and then exp- 
detonated before they were able to land on their targets. So during this massive shooting war, no one dies. So maybe that's the reason why they chose Fort Sumter instead of you know, the United Nations or really any other location where they could have had this. So just to wrap up the, you know, the plot line, where are we going with this? So all of a sudden, all the world leaders have no nuclear weapons. Minutes later, Cobra Commander comes in with a, uh, a large group of ninjas and soldiers with machine guns, which I always think is an interesting combination, basically announcing that Cobra had launched into space seven satellites called their Zeus satellites, but not armed with nuclear weapons, but instead with tungsten rods, which I know, Tim, you're going to explain a little bit uh, mm-hmm. how this is supposed to work, but essentially uh, tungsten, and they proceed to launch or drop or drop, I should say. They don't shoot it, but they just kind of like let it fall and let gravity do its thing onto London, showing they have the ability to essentially destroy entire cities just with this tungsten rod. Yeah, so they drop it on London, and what happens in this supposedly kids' action movie, London is gone. London falls. You know, we had the movie recently, you know, London has fallen. Like, no, literally, this one, it rises up into the air and then drops down to the ground. Yeah, so basically like a major earthquake where the whole thing just kind of... Implodes, and I love during the scene because you have all the world leaders there. You know, presumably also the UK Prime Minister, but the UK Prime Minister doesn't say like, "Holy shoot, my family, everyone I know in London is gone." No, it's it's the French president that goes, "You can't do this. How did you do this?" Right, and so Cobra Commander basically says, "I will not." destroy any more cities if all of you pledge your allegiance. So if not- you pledge if you pledge your allegiance, I will hit a button because I guess Zartan when he blew up London also initiated an auto drop for all of their other cities. Right. Satellites. They're, yeah, they're they're targeted the cities and they're they're moving, you know, they're being positioned, they're moving into place to drop their tungsten rods and said, you know, I will stop the sequence if you pledge your allegiance. So going all out saying I want to run the world. No kind of smaller you know, he says, stakes. He says, he's going I, all out. I want it all. I want it all. So, you know, the GI Joes characteristically, they show up after getting the info from storm shadow. They have an epic shootout scene. They're able to stop the tungsten rods from being, you know, any more tungsten rods from being launched towards uh, the earth. The G.I. Joes are able to basically cause a self-destruct signal or send a signal to the satellites for each one to blow up. Uh, And in the ensuing firefight, uh, Cobra Commander, as we all know, is able to find a helicopter. There's always a helicopter with one Cobra, you know, soldier who's sitting there just waiting for a Cobra to have to escape. Gets in the helicopter, uh, basically drives off to to live to fight another day uh, with the G.I. Joe soldiers. Uh, welcomed back by the rescued true president of the United States, uh, given medals, and then we kind of see that kind of handoff to The Rock to basically continue the G.I. Joe franchise. The Rock gets this um, this gun that supposedly belonged to Patton. He fires it up into the air, fairly close to the actual president of the United States, <laughs> the real one, but I guess maybe he's allowed to do that when you save the world. Yeah, I don't know who told him, like, when I give you this gun, that means you're supposed to shoot it. You know, usually when you have kind of a, a, a collectible firearm, I wouldn't think that you'd be shooting it on a regular basis. Or especially at the ceremony in which the president is 
you know, standing four feet away. Well, he's gearing up for the third one so they can go after Cobra Commander with Patton's gun. Although in the movie, you also see Roadblock carry his, I guess it's from the, the cartoon, the comic books, his like gigantic tank gun. I forget what. Yeah, it's like an anti-aircraft gun that you'd have on like the top of a tank that he just, you know, carries around. It's basically like Jesse Ventura with the yeah. uh, Gatlin gun from Predator. I mean, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the. The forest or the jungle, and it's a hundred degrees out, and I'm wearing you know two hundred pounds of gear, but you know that's how I roll. So that's how I roll. So that's how the movie ends. Uh, it's you know it's a pretty good action movie, but there are at least three big things that I think we should talk about um, when it comes to the nuclear nonsense in this. And the first one actually comes from a question that was submitted to us by one of our listeners, Cody. Uh, he asks the scene where the GI Joes land in Pakistan to secure. All of the country's nuclear weapons seems pretty crazy. Can something like that with a special forces unit um, actually happen? Or was that just something that Hollywood and the directors made up? Well, thanks, Cody, for the question. Uh, you can also submit your own questions, other listeners, uh, to our Facebook page uh, on Twitter, which, again, is at, at Nuclear Podcast, or over email at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we love the questions when they come in because we have things that we want to cover, but everyone also has pretty good pers- uh perspectives on on these things so and, and i should say I'm, I'm interested on the nuclear side but also from just a general film buffs perspective i mean the gi joe's invading another country mm-hmm. i always think well if you're you know a moviegoer at that in that country you may not be too happy about that so i'm curious like how did how did pakistan actually respond to the movie in addition to kind of the substance of it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how Pakistan responded to it. They banned the movie. It was not allowed because their censor board thought that it allowed uh, – had too many scenes showing the country in a negative light. Although I guess you're not really allowed to show uh, Pakistan as an unstable state in that country, uh, especially when there are scenes of a foreign power invading and gathering up Pakistan's nuclear installations. But of all the writing in this movie, I thought this was actually a pretty clever bit of writing because – it's based on real events because 2013 was two years after uh, SEAL Team 6 raided the uh, compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where it turns out Osama bin Laden was there. So that was in May of 2011, Operation Neptune Spear. U.S. Special Forces uh, entered Pakistani airspace without the Pakistani military knowing, and they landed in a compound, killed Osama bin Laden, and got out. And then rip- the world news was reported. Um, funny enough, uh, one of the first people to report the news about the Osama bin Laden raid, guess who it was? The Rock. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Dwayne The Rock Johnson tweeted that that there was some big news coming in. Supposedly he might have learned about this from someone he knew in SEAL Team 6 because he (laughs) he has a lot of – he portrays people in the movies because of his connections with with professional wrestling. They do a lot of USO shows. I get a lot of fan letters. Sometimes it's about covert military strikes. Yeah. So he was one of two guys that tweeted about it at the exact same time. Um, The other guy was Donald Rumsfeld, former Secretary of Defense's assistant. Mm. So – Another weird connection to this. I don't know if this raid on Pakistan was his idea, but maybe uh, this was just setting up his uh, military movie career. It know? could be. Like I could do this. It, it worked out pretty well. The Osama bin Laden raid was a big hit in the United States. Ninety percent of the public polled afterwards said it was a good idea to go ahead and do that, but uh, it wasn't a really good. It wasn't a very popular decision in Pakistan, um, according to some polls. As much as two thirds of the public disapproved of the move, and it made the Pakistani military their intelligence services and government 
very paranoid that the U.S. military could launch a similar commando raid, not to take out an individual terrorist, but simultaneously take all of the country's nuclear weapons. Kind of what happens in the plot of this movie. Um, so as a result, Pakistan took a number of interesting steps, kind of scary, some of them, to secure their arsenal against G.I. Joes or any sort of special forces of the United States. Uh, there's a great article published in the National Journal by Jeffrey Goldberg and Mark Amender from 2011 that details what Pakistan did. Their strategic plans division, the state apparatus that is responsible for the safety of their uh, nuclear weapons stockpile. Reportedly, they started to move the nice nuclear weapons around in unmarked vans with low security profiles down busy roads, basically to hide them from the prying satellite eyes of the United States. Now, I don't know if, you, if you're getting this, Joel. They put nuclear weapons in basically U-Haul vans and drove them around town. So that oh, U-Hauls, okay. Like, I was thinking more of like, you know, Honda Odyssey maybe. You know? <laughs> it's got a lot of cargo space, good for the kids, good, good for the nuclear weapons. I mean, you got that fourth row or third row, whatever it's called, that you can like collapse, you know. Well, whatever, convenient. whatever it was, they weren't, con- they weren't convoys with armed guards. Basically, the theory was if the United States doesn't know where all the Pakistani nuclear weapons are, they would never even try to take them all out because they would never get all of them. It would take a full invasion of the country, which is a higher you know, risk you're going to have to take right. uh, to actually go ahead and do this. But the problem with this is Pakistan, as we see in the movie, they're home to a number of terrorist groups as well as an intelligence service that has suspect motives. Now that these nuclear weapons are sitting in traffic without a convoy of armed guards – they seem like they're pretty susceptible to being stolen by the very forces that you know, the United States is worried about getting them. Um, usually these warheads in Pakistan are what's called demated. They're separated, their nuclear cores or their triggers from the rest of the weapon structure itself. But according to a U.S. senior intelligence official that told Amander and Goldberg, Pakistan started using or moving around mated weapons in this fashion, especially as Pakistan's nuclear weapon strategy increasingly has relied on these smaller battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons because they're already small enough. They just start transporting them around. There's about 100 to 120 is estimated number of nuclear weapons in Pakistan. Uh, I know that in the movie, they only see about seven or so in the back of that truck in the uh, when the Joes go back to the rendezvous point. But it seems like it would have been a, quite a big mission to go ahead and do this. Right. Now, it's it's funny, just to take a step back, that you were reminded of the Bin Laden raid when I was watching that scene, or at least the, the earlier scenes where the Joes first learn about the unrest in Pakistan with the, the assassination of the head of state. I originally thought back to the real-life scenario with Benazir Bhutto, hmm. former prime minister who got assassinated in 2007. And so it seemed like it was a, a unique combination, I feel, of hmm. those two real-life scenarios, both of you know reflecting what had been you know unrest in Pakistan at the highest levels, and then also the issue of kind of uh, breaking sovereignty uh, with you know outside forces coming in uh, when they feel like they have a particular security threat that they feel like they're justified in, in addressing. Yeah, well, it looks like the screenwriters drew from lots of different points of foreign policy history. Uh, with that. But, you know, is it historical? Is Pakistan just being paranoid or is this based on something? Well, uh, honestly, based on the information that's in the public, they're crazy about whether or not the United States has the interest in going out and getting their nuclear weapons, but they're certainly not completely insane. They have plans to do this should the events of the movie, which is the collapse of the country, 
they have their, the Pentagon is, has plans to be able to deal with this. Even as far back as 2000, when A.Q. Khan, who is the, the godfather, the, the father of the atomic bomb in Pakistan, when his team was celebrating the fact that they tested these nuclear weapons in 1998 for the first time, um, Khan warned that the West has been leading a crusade against the Muslims for thousand years. He said that the United States would do anything in its power to neutralize Pakistan's nuclear assets. So there's a sense there that even though the United States is a, an ally of Pakistan, that they're a fair-weather ally, that they're willing to turn on Pakistan whenever it's no longer as important as it is now in terms of counterterrorism. Well, it's pretty unlikely that the United States would just decide someday to disarm the Pakistan nuclear arsenal because, you know, it feels like it. Uh, you can be sure the Pentagon has plans to secure the country's stockpile in the event of a crisis, uh, the collapse of the government. According to Roger Creasy, who was the former deputy director of counterterrorism under both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, he says, It's safe to assume that planning for the worst-case scenario involving Pakistan nukes has already taken place inside the government. If you're interested in this type of operation, which is what you need to be able to do to uh, seize or remotely destroy a stockpile, which is called a render safe mission, I highly recommend reading that National Journal article that we mentioned earlier. It details how U.S. Joint Special Operations Command has already deployed a series of specially trained units in South Asia, both Navy SEALs that were involved in uh, Operation Neptune Spear, and also Army um, commandos that are, have expertise in explosive ordnance disposal. Supposedly, the United States military has also built basically mock Pakistani villages with hidden nuclear stockpile storage depots on the east coast of the United States so they can train um, the SEALs and the Delta Force on how to be able to go ahead and, and, and do this. So there's clearly there is worst case contingency planning going on. Now, can, these I just, forces, can I just ask yeah. on that? I mean, is it your sense? I mean, we're talking about just Pakistan right now, but um, is it generally understood that that is probably also done for a variety of other, like Russia or things like that. If I think people maybe sense that Pakistan, because of its unique structure internally, that it's there's there's definitely uh, an ongoing insurgency. There's a sense that at any time, um, either jihadist forces or you know it's gone through a series of military coups. That one of those may be the one that makes nuclear weapons, which are such an important asset to the state. Like you know, it's something that you would want to protect. Even as many resources you put onto that, the more nuclear weapons you have, the harder it is to keep track of all of them. So it seems like Pakistan is a country where you can do some kind of planning with that. But there's so many nuclear weapons in, in Russia. There's so many nuclear weapons in China dispersed right. throughout the country at, at various times that it would be pretty hard to go ahead and do that. But that doesn't mean what we don't have these plans in case one day the United Kingdom, for example, turns against the United States. There are plans out there. Nuclear weapon targeting plans. There's to be a able file to take cabinet somewhere. You have to. The military plans for everything. Um, I can. I'll link to an article that's about this in our show notes. But there's plans to be able to go out and take out France and take out the UK. They're not talked about on a day to day basis, but we certainly have gone through the the programming and the planning to be able to do that. Although, um, as we learned in the movie Independence Day, which is going to have its own sequel soon, we didn't have many uh, contingency plans for. Alien invasions. We just thought so, we could nuke it, and it didn't work. Right. Well, these... Gotta step up your game, guys. Come <laughs> on now. Um, these special forces are ready to act in the event of a nuclear weapon or nuclear material either going missing in the country or the country's political leadership collapsing due to civil war, a jihadist coup, military coup, 
similar to what happens in the movie. I don't know if they necessarily thought about a ninja doing an assassination of a, of the political leader, but I'm sure they have something along those lines. But it would be actually quite difficult for the Joes to secure all of Pakistan's nuclear facilities. As I mentioned, there's 100 to 120 nuclear weapons and nuclear warheads in Pakistan by our best public estimates. And General James Jones, who you might remember as Obama's first national security advisor, was asked about this, and he said, anyone who tells you that they know where all of Pakistan's nukes are are lying to you. So it's one of those things where intelligence is very important, not just the rock jumping out of a helicopter um, going after these individual weapons themselves. So in addition to these roaming <laughs> nuclear U-Haul vans, estimates show Honda there Odysseys, please, Odysseys, Tim. I'm sorry. be technically accurate here. There are at least 15 sites where nuclear weapons uh, and related equipment are stored. These types of missions, if you want to go out and take all of these things out, are called disablement campaigns because they were basically aimed to shut down the entire Pakistani nuclear arsenal. It would require more than just U.S. Special Forces or the Joes. It would probably be a larger mission led by U.S. Central Command, U.S. Pacific Command, civilian experts, and many other, probably a lot of our allies as well. And according to the article, that the National Journal article, one of Pakistan's strongest allies, China, has supposedly said that it would raise no objection to this type of disablement campaign under the right conditions, the collapse of a leadership and nuclear weapons fall into the hand of terrorists. So even China, one of their closest allies, would be okay with this type of procedure. So I'm curious, Tim, because I know you follow foreign policy dynamics a little more than I do. If there was that kind of situation, that kind of crisis, let's let's pull directly from the retaliation movie where head of state murdered, active intelligence that nuclear weapons – are on the move in some way uh, through, you know, terrorist hands. You know, we see in the movie that, you know, the people handling, literally moving the the cone of the nuclear warhead from the missile to, you know, some other uh, warehouse. And you they know. actually did a pretty good job of making that look like what it looks like, much better than some of these other movies that we've seen. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought that was that, that their depiction. It looked a little more polished than it probably looks like, but it looked pretty good. Now, the gigantic missile that in that missile assembly that they were at, I don't know. Yeah. I have to check my notes again, but that was a pretty – that looked like a, a missile to send a space shuttle into space, not an ICBM, which Pakistan mostly relies on their air force and uh, more short-range missiles because they're all targeted towards India. They're not targeted towards the United States. Oh, gotcha. So, so I'm curious though if in that scenario – and let's, let's assume we're under the Obama presidency or maybe – Hillary Clinton presidency, something like that. Not the Zartan administration. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, because that would be – the stakes would be so high, I could see any single country maybe deciding to act unilaterally, um, maybe even India or something like that where they thought we need to act right now. But I could also see there there being advantages to maybe going in with one or two other countries or maybe a more concerted, organized, dare I say, coalition of the willing – I mean, would you anticipate that in the hours that follow that crisis that the United States might try to act in concert with some of the countries like China or maybe Great Britain, you know, as far as actually organizing forces together to, to do that I think type of mission? Or do you think because of the time-sensitive nature, they just go it alone? I think they would probably mention to – there would be conversations if there was really good actionable intelligence about – 
nuclear weapons fall into the hands of terrorists or maybe the people that were guarding these forces have been taken out or abandoned. Uh, there's, there's lots of reports about whether or not some of the strategic plans division or some of the individual commanders have been infiltrated by jihadist forces. There's a very strong historical link uh, ever since President Zia of Pakistan, who was a military leader who used Islam as a unifying force in his country. But will China put boots on the ground to do it? They probably won't. India, we would probably not ask to do that because people that you'd want to work with in Pakistan to help secure that because not everyone will be as part of this uh, collapsing force, whatever it happens to be, whether it be mm-hmm. civil war or jihadist group or military coup, you don't want Indians coming in because then that starts a war between India and Pakistan. So right. the United States probably in, in constant. So it might actually be a cleaner operation. It might be a cleaner operation, but that doesn't mean that India and China can't provide intelligence. Sure. Oper- you know, maybe they can be a, a location of bases where the United right. States can operate from. Now, I don't know any of these things. I only know what's being yeah. reported in the public and, and some of these great open source sources right. of information. But I'd imagine it's some kind of combination. But whatever it is, I would say that Pakistan is right that its ally, the United States, spends time thinking about how to take control over their country's nuclear arsenal. But the Pentagon probably has these plans for a host of other countries. These plans would only be carried out in the event of a national collapse, whereby the nuclear material, the nuclear weapons, could fall into the hands of terrorist groups or rogue commander or someone that might want to sell them to a nefarious group like COBRA. So I will concede that the screenwriters had an interesting idea here. After 2011 with the Osama bin Laden raid, they very quickly – I don't know if this was a direct connection, but it seems like they built this into their plot. And it was something that is, I was very surprised when I saw it. But that's the end of my compliments because the next scene was the one that destroyed this movie for me. And I'm someone who, even if a movie has bad scenes and I'll complain about it, I can still try my best to think whether or not an action movie is good or bad or whatever that's an action movie or a drama. I try not to let one scene in particular ruin something for me. But this one was so over the top, so ridiculous, and so technically inaccurate that I got so angry. I, I watched it on Netflix by myself because my wife was still at work and I was at home maybe sick or something. And I watched it and I yelled at the, t- the computer screen. Then my wife came home and I yelled about it to her. And she had like, where did this come from? I don't know what you're talking about. G.I. Joe? I don't know what that is. Why are you yelling at me about this? Then I called Joel, who hadn't seen the movie yet, and I started yelling to him about this movie. And this is why. So, so basically this, you started this podcast this, so you could get to this point. That is not a completely inaccurate <laughs> characterization of my reaction. So you've got like three movies, two that are really great you want to do, and then there's like this one that you really just want to tear apart. This one and the Mission Impossible 4 movie with the one so I thought, I wish someone would want to listen to me yell about this and, or at least complain about it. I'm not actually going to yell. I'm just a friend who's trying to find a positive outlet for you to uh, – Deal with your issues, Tim. I appreciate this. <laughs> Hopefully you're not going to bill me for uh, therapy. But So now let's move on to the atomic summit scene, the A8 um, atomic summit scene. I think it's I want one of those flags that they have at the around the table that has like the country flag and then right. the atomic flag uh, wherever the summit is. But so the atomic summit scene, otherwise known as the scene that ruins the movie for me. And wow. caused me to yell at the TV when I first saw it on Netflix at home by myself. 
when my wife came home uh, from work, she proceeded to have to listen to me yell about this. And she's like, I don't know what this is. I'm not a G.I. Joe person. What are you talking about? Then I called Joel, hadn't seen the movie yet, and proceeded to yell to him about this. I partially blamed your love of G.I. Joe for me having to see this scene. And it was very difficult for me to get past this. Although I usually try to. I try to recognize that movies can have one bad scene and I can still enjoy the rest of it. I don't know why this one in particular just does it for me. Not this. Here's a quick audio uh, recording of a bit of the favorite parts of this scene. I ask you here with the goal of universal disarmament, nuclear zero. Now, I was prepared to cajole to get what I want. I'm now threatened. Each of you will clear out his nuclear closet immediately. Failure to participate will be considered an act of war. And all at the push of a button. You have lost your mind. Well, the good news is no global warming summit next month. Unless one of us cared enough about his place in history to unilaterally disable his warheads. Hmm? You know, in the name of the children. You volunteers? No? Fine. Me. Come on, who's going to follow suit, huh? Are you really going to stand by and watch as Earth is destroyed? A boat. You Gentlemen, welcome to a nuclear-free world. Well, there are lots of things wrong with this scene and things that really bother me. Uh, some of this is nitpicking. I probably should just ignore because I know you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. But... There's so much wrong with this scene that it defies my ability to suspend disbelief. To suspend my disbelief to the required levels for me to enjoy this, I would literally have to put my beliefs into outer space next to the Project Zeus satellites. Like, that's how much I'd have to suspend my disbelief. The first big thing is that the movie assumes that all nuclear weapons around the globe are ready to launch at a given notice. Any notice, flip the switch. Everything goes up in the air. This is bonkers. This is something that is an incredible disservice to the people watching this movie around the world. (laughs) People who may have a sense of how these things work. You push a button and everything launches all at once. I can at least maybe understand in the United States in this world because Cobra Commander is at control. and He maybe ordered all of the submarine captains and all of the missile silo people like, hey, just a heads up. Be ready. Something's going to happen. I'm just thinking maybe they hired Staples to maybe install the easy button uh, yes. in the briefcase. They're like, boom, that it was It is a easy. red button. Well, according to the nuclear notebook, which is a count of the uh, nuclear weapon estimated by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, there are approximately 16,300 nuclear weapons at 98 sites in 14 countries around the globe in 2014, about a year after this movie was released. So pretty close estimates for term of time-wise. Of this number, however, only 4,000 are operationally available. And again, only 1,800 of those are on high alert and ready to launch on a short notice. The rest of those numbers are things stored at various military bases for use after the first round of fighting takes place or are currently being repaired, being built, or awaiting dismantlement, a decision that could be pretty quickly reversed in the event of Cobra Commander's plan. Right, although I guess to to 
kind of break into the suspension of disbelief a little bit. I guess since they went into that summit knowing that they would be launching the weapons, I think at least on the U.S. end, we could make the assumption that all the weapons were in a state of readiness. I'm ready to. to I'm, I'm willing to concede that. At least okay. it's very difficult because we don't have we don't have the missiles to launch all of them, right. unless they just said. All right, the rest of our things that are in storage, we'll put them on a boat and float it over towards another country. <laughs> They're and slowly coming at us. We don't have the number of missiles to, to do that. We don't have the number of bombers or submarines to fire everything we have all at once. But, all right, I'm willing to concede that in terms of the United States end, but there are a litany of other problems. The movie assumes a country would launch all of its deployed nuclear weapons at once under any circumstance. This is crazy. You don't fire all of your weapons until you know you actually hit the targets the first time around. For example, what if you missed something or didn't detect it in the first place? You didn't know where all of another country's weapons were. So I'm talking specifically about the non-U.S. countries in this place. So the Russians <coughs> want to make sure that we're, they're in a fighting war. You don't fire everything at once because what happens if there's a malfunction or a targeting error or some sort of an intelligence mishap? It's like firing all of your bullets at the beginning of a gunfight in like two seconds and then just standing there like an idiot. Well, let's take a step back though because I, I thought it was just funny that they – the movie assumes that every other country has a nuclear briefcase. So, I mean, do we – I mean, is most it publicly countries, known that – Most countries don't have a nuclear briefcase because okay. – and I'll get to this a little bit later on. But like most countries' weapons aren't in a constant state of alert to where they could even fire – a nuclear weapon through a briefcase. Now, we talked about this in the Mission Impossible 4 episode. A nuclear briefcase doesn't fire anything. It's simply just an authentication tool to say that the president or the secretary of defense or the vice president or whoever is in part of that country's national command authority, that it authenticates that that person is the person giving the order to the various military uh, apparatus that actually does the launching. These things don't launch anything. Now, you can conceivably set it up to do that way, but that's not how it works because countries are worried about a Zartan-like president who just decides one day to push a button. Do we, do we think in the bowels of the Pentagon there's actually in one of those file cabinets a file on what if there's a shape-shifting uh, terrorist who can take the form of a head of state and well, then take over after, a nuclear after stockpile? The, movie, the Manchurian candidate, there oh. was brainwashing that used to take place. It's science. Yeah. You know? Well, anyways, uh, the nuclear football thing is so funny because the, the nuclear football, which a lot of countries don't have because a lot of them, their weapons aren't at a ready state of alert to launch. So briefcases are good for you if you're a president who needs to respond quickly. Say incoming missiles are on their way. You need to respond quickly so that you can retaliate, which would then deter the country from firing in the first place because they need to be able to feel like there's no chance that they can get away with hitting you and then not being attacked. That's what a nuclear briefcase is for. It's for when the president is not at the White House or not in a, a position to be able to do launching. Like you don't need the nuclear briefcase to launch an attack. You can do it from the Situation Room or from the Pentagon because they have other ways of authenticating the president. Um, in the movie, they have a retinal scan, which i do not 100% sure nuclear footballs have retina scans because you don't want these things malfunctioning in the middle of a shooting war. It's fairly maybe, simple. Uh, maybe iPhone fingerprint scanner at least? <laughs> I don't even or, think that. Uh... I think it just – the president carries the thing called the biscuit, which is a um, a sheet of paper. It's like usually a laminated card inside of their suit pocket, and that has maybe 10 codes on them. We talked about this in one of the Mission Impossible movies. 
the Mission Impossible episode that it has 10 codes or something, and only three of them are the real codes. So they have to memorize which ones are the right codes, and they're a series of numbers and letters, and they have to authenticate themselves as their their identity and that's pretty much the extent of it there is an additional level because you don't want to overcomplicate these things because what if there is a shooting war and the retina scan machine isn't working because i have a number of times when i have my iphone and it's wet outside and i put my thumb on the stupid scanner and it doesn't work so you don't want to have mistakes like that take place when it comes to the nuclear briefcase but again i this is what i know from what's in the public i have actually seen this thing and how other countries do it but it doesn't seem like you actually need uh, a retinal scan machine or biometrics of any sort. So can I ask, do, do you know, let's say they, they realize Zartan was impersonating the president. So mm-hmm. at that point, if they don't have the president, you know, it would go down to the, the vice president. Yeah, you can, deactivate, not, you can deactivate a nuclear football. The Russians... Well, so would it would the codes change in any way before it reverts to the vice president, like in, in the chain of transitioning so at least temporarily. We to... talked about this. Uh, there are nuclear codes, which you hear, those are just authentication codes just to identify yourself and to authenticate your identity to the military who actually does the launching. The codes on the bombs, whether it be a permissive action link right. um, code or the codes needed to launch on a missile silo site or on a submarine, those are separate codes. But those are codes that if you have, but you don't have access to the actual triggers inside of a silo or on a submarine, they're useless to you. Mm-hmm. You have to infiltrate at multiple levels. So it's simply having what's usually considered the nuclear code to operate the nuclear football briefcase, those don't help you. Those only will authenticate your actions. Now, you can use them to start a war, but there still right. has to be a process. They'll still – it goes from there, but they don't actually launch anything. Like the push up a button and seeing something flying – into no, the right. That's not how that works. Right. I guess I'm I'm thinking more so if you actually had the situation where the president was being impersonated yeah. and then it reverted to the VP. I believe w- the VP has be- their own set of codes. You wouldn't want Joe Biden, for example, to pretend he's Barack Obama launching a nuclear strike with the same set of codes. You have different ones for different people so they can know exactly who is on the other line. That's, what I, was, that's what I was curious yeah. about. Would there actually be a situation where they would say – those codes, just for authentication purposes, have been compromised. Because the NSA, we know and the, the NSA changes. They, they, they okay. create the codes. They change. Um, and, yeah, they're not the same codes all the time. A, a nuclear football can be de- deactivated. This okay. happened when uh, Gorbachev was uh, held in a semi-military coup. Um, they found out about it, and it's called the Checknet. They, they deactivated it. The Russian military once they found out that someone had it that wasn't the president. But this isn't the only thing that bothers me. I'm going to keep going because I have a lot to talk about uh, and have people listening, hopefully. <laughs> Probably they've shut it off by now. Uh, the movie also ignores that there, <laughs> there are nuclear weapons on airplanes, on bombers, and weapons stored on Air Force bases for these bombers. Airplanes need time to take off and get into the air, reach their targets, and drop their bombs or fire cruise missiles. I can assume, like we said, that the U.S. bombers might be ready to attack because Zartan ordered them to be in the air and uh, fly around, do essentially like a deterrence mission. But not everybody else. Uh, other countries would have noticed also if these airplanes were in the air heading towards their airspaces. So the U.K. is all on submarines pretty much, but a lot of other countries rely on their bombers to be able to go through with this. That's a lot of what the the French French have submarines, but most of their stuff is also on bombers. And a lot of the NATO, U.S. nuclear weapons that are on NATO bases and in in Europe, like Germany, 
those are all airplanes. So those have to go up into the air to actually launch. So you can't launch them at the push of a button. So they just ignore the fact that these things exist. They also assume that submarines were all at the right firing depth at the exact moment when Zartan pushes the button. Same thing How as the How could bombers. they assume that? How could they assume that? Well, how dare they? Trust me, I've, I've, I've uh, dared them to respond that no one answers my letters. Tim's just Hasbro. walking around the, the room right now, just pacing, just incredulous. It takes at least 30 <laughs> minutes for modern ballistic missile submarines, or what they call boomers, to launch all of their missiles. So if they're given an order, you know, fire all the missiles, it takes them time to do that. They can't launch all of their tubes, their launch tubes, at once. So say they have 24 launch tubes on um, a Ohio-class submarine that have Trident two missiles on them. Each of those missiles has 8 to 10 warheads on it because they're the merved weapons. It takes time to launch all of them. You can't do it all at once. If you do it all at once, there's too much water... Flirt, uh, there's too much water activity. You have to wait time for the water to clear before you fire the next one. Usually, they'll sometimes they think about they will fire, then they'll move a little bit, then they'll fire another one. It takes time for them to be able to do that. You have to wait, otherwise there'll be an accident. Another thing, movie ignores tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons that aren't on ICBMs ready to launch. These are things that we would use in a shooting war. Russia relies a lot on them. Pakistan also, I guess Pakistan's taken out on this. But the Russians have, you know, a large portion of their nuclear force is non-strategic. So they're smaller weapons that aren't on ICBMs. You can't launch them immediately. What else does the movie ignore, Joel? Thank you for asking. The movie ignores mobile launch systems that take a while to set up before you can be able to launch them. Uh, They have to be fueled most of the time, and that takes time. It ignores ICBMs that use liquid fuel, and those take time to fuel up, sometimes as, as much as an hour to fuel. You can't store liquid fuel in an ICBM rocket, otherwise it corrodes or it's unstable. So it takes time to literally fuel the rockets. Okay, you see a pattern coming here? I, the movie, I see a pattern. Well, I think it ignores targeting parameters. Basically, it assumes that every missile silo, submarine, or bomber has pre-programmed targets. Now, I bet they do in some senses. So if the if our early warning detects that the uh, missile force is coming from Russia, it, there probably is a, a smaller set of targets that, gets t- that get chosen, and then they fire. The Russians have um, – there's reports that they have this thing called the dead hand, which is like the doomsday weapon from uh, Dr. Strangelove, where if it detects an incoming attack and that things are hitting the ground, they have preset targets that launch automatically without any sort of human command. Those things have preset targets, but – the French probably don't have preset targets. The Chinese probably don't have preset targets. And where are those preset targets going to? That may have been why in the movie not all of their weapons went at the United States, which is the person attacking them. They went after other random countries that were involved in this uh, this nuclear summit, this atomic summit. They have to The bombs have to go know where the attack's coming from or to where the missiles to go. Another weird technical issue, this is probably super nitpicking, but... You don't fire all of your weapons all at once at individual targets because you have a risk of what's called fracticide, where one incoming missile or warhead is destroyed by another one that just hit before it that blew up, which you'll then lose your – you'll basically waste your warheads. When you have only a couple of them, you don't want to waste them. So your targeting parameters are timed and sequenced in a particular way. Not in this movie though. It's all one button and it gets pushed. All right. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna step in a little bit. That's a good recitation of some of the technical things wrong. I feel I should probably step in right now, maybe give some sort of defense when it comes to the narrative, if that's okay. I have a few more, but I'll take a step back. I will yield I will yield the floor to my colleague from okay. Kentucky. All right. So and feel free to, to finish. From a purely narrative standpoint, uh, I mean, and, and you know, not just for the sake of kind of speeding along a story, uh, but also to kind of reflect the ethos of GI Joe a little bit, as far as kind of you know giving the overall broad brushstrokes of uh, of of how this crisis could come about. I mean, I, it, it seemed like classic GI Joe to me for these powers to have these nuclear weapons at the ready. And it kind of mm-hmm. almost plays into, I guess, the cultural uh, stereotypes about nuclear weapons in terms of all these countries have nuclear weapons pointed at each other at all times, 24-7, at the push of the button, boom, you know, the U.S. president and then people assume probably other heads of state can also basically just hit – a button and then boom we have lights out nuclear war you know skynet whoever is actually mm-hmm. make the decision to fire fire the weapon so with all due deference to the the technician's point of view i, I thought it actually made perfect sense from the point of view of gi joe where uh of course you know that would be the that would be the process by which you could fire your nuclear weapons that is one button could launch every single nuclear device out there I know what you're saying, and I would be willing to concede a lot of this is, is just nuclear nitpicking. I've been reading a book called Atomic Bomb Cinema, which is written by Jerome Shapiro. He's a professor at Hiroshima University in Japan, and he's a he, he's a film scholar. He looks at what film history shows us about why movies portray things in a certain way, not from a technical standpoint, but his big emphasis is on the narrative, what an individual movie is saying about a time and place, what about what we think about nuclear weapons, what people's response to it were, what were the anxieties at the time, what were the the interest and perspective on all of these. And it's he particularly calls out uh, people like myself as calls leftist te- uh, technocrats that are too focused on the individual technical accuracy of something, and that's how you judge a movie versus being able to tell what's the story, what is the what are the what because you know art movies are art they're art forms they're not uh straight adaptations it's not a documentary it's trying to tell uh, a narrative story and as i was reading that particular passage i was like ah this guy would not like our podcast so i've listened to all this stuff and i understand that there's that movies are art and all that but i would also say that the or just gi joe (laughs) gi joe is art form but it's an art form for a kid's show that was based on a cartoon that was based on a comic Comic book book. line that was trying to sell toys in the 30 or 40 years ago so i'm willing to nitpick the heck out of this because um it is a narrative form for children and i think that uh, it does a disservice to our youth who should be understanding nuclear weapons and the danger that they have and not just learning from from nonsense like this and now I know. And knowing is, well, you lost the battle because you know nothing. Oh, okay. Okay. But you know what? Now that you're, you're stepped away for a second, I'm going to keep going on my things that bother me. I only have a few more. Basically, I've already talked about that countries like China, Israel, India, and Pakistan believe to have most of their weapons demated. 
um, for especially their land-based systems, so like missile silos. So the bombs are stored separately from the missiles. Even the bombs themselves have their individual components separated. So the idea that they could launch everything all at once is essentially ignoring um, that basic fact. Uh, finally, the biggest pet peeve I have in most of these movies is that on the nuclear suitcase, they all have big red abort the launch buttons. We've talked about this in the Mission Impossible episode. These don't exist, except for bombers, which once they go silent and they enter enemy airspace, you can't talk to them. Those are the only things that can be recalled. Part of the reason why we keep bombers in particular is because bombers, you can communicate to them and signal to another country, look, I have my bombers in the air, back down, but I can recall them if you do what I want you to do. Once you launch a missile, that's it. You can't recall it. That's They're designed that way so that the enemy can't find out whatever recall abort button signal that you're pushing, why they can't find that, and then cause your weapons to blow up in the air. So the idea that it's just simply safe for people that launch weapons in the air during a shooting war because the public will think, well, you know, just have this aggressive military posture, launch your things in the air, and then back down and abort your launch if you need to. <coughs> that is a very dangerous idea that I hope people don't get um, out of this. But as if this movie scene wasn't already bad, the individual nuclear launch devices have a bunch of really bad translations on them that were clearly pulled from an intern using Google Translate on the writing staff. Uh, the French abort button on the nuclear device actually means to have an abortion, not to destroy incoming missiles. Uh, so abortion in the sense of Planned Parenthood abortions, not destroy the missiles. Uh, arm the missile, the button that translates to arm as in, you know, get the bomb ready to fire, actually means like the thing that connects your hand to your shoulder, that kind of an arm, not your arm the missile. The On the Israeli nuclear suitcase, it has the wrong verb for launch, and the Indian suitcase misspells the word for self-destruct. So there's a lot of really good detail in this movie, but Clearly, they uh, didn't. And the technician was asleep that day when they were uh, putting the props together. Or it was maybe like Friday at four thirty in the afternoon, and they were ready to go home. He had a deadline. Um, So that that that's that's me complaining about this. But let's talk about the next cool thing, which is Project Zeus. So according to Zartan, this is a space-based weapon system that comprises seven satellites, each armed with ten hollow platinum tubes filled with telephone pole-sized tungsten rods. And, as Cobra Commander so helpfully tells us, the satellite drops the rod from orbit, gravity does the rest. The rod travels eight times faster than a bullet, hits the ground with a force substantially greater than a nuclear warhead. As Zartan says gleefully, And with a force significantly greater than a nuclear warhead. None of the fallout. All of the fun. And after that, London is used as the Alderaan of this particular movie, where Project Zeus demonstrates its power by destroying the entirety of the city, uh, or at least looks like most of the city. You see all the major landmarks explode, as you're supposed to see in an action movie, and the rest of the world leaders surrender to Cobra Commander and Zartan. So I'll, I'll have to admit, this is actually a pretty clever, uh, unique weapon that I can't remember being in an action movie before. Can you? No, I I remember when I first saw it, I was like, wait, what are they doing? Tungsten rod? What? 
it seems so pacific to come out of nowhere. So did they write this uh, just on their own? Did this come from something? Um, and if it did come from something, could this weapon actually be used to decimate a city like London so easily? Well, here's the answer. It's definitely a real weapon system, at least a hypothetical one, that's been studied and debated since the 1960s, but ultimately was discarded as impractical, costly, and not as powerful as initially promised. It goes by a lot of different names. Broadly, this type of weapon system is categorized as a kinetic bombardment weapon. In a U.S. Air Force study in 2003, which was called the Transformative Flight Plan, talked about these types of weapons as hyper-velocity rod bundles. The, uh, the RAND Corporation, a uh, semi-private, semi-public think tank that thinks about nuclear deterrence issues and, and does studies for the military, they called another version of this artificial meteoroids. So these are like smaller spheres of tungsten instead of a long rod. Still others call them rods from gods. Good, good uh, puns rhyming there. But the, the projectiles can be either smaller spheres of tungsten weighing about 100 kilograms in some estimates or larger telephone pole-sized rods, about 8,000 kilograms. The origin story for these weapons can be traced back to uh, a science fiction author and spaced weapons thinker who was working for Boeing in the U.S. Air Force at the time, Jerry Pornell. So he, his idea, which he called Thor... Obviously, another Marvel connection, but probably just because Thor rains down thunder from the skies. His weapon system had a GPS guidance system uh, when he was thinking about it with moving weights in the rod and fins that would change its center of gravity so that it could accurately hit its target from space uh, when it actually comes down to the Earth. Now, he guessed it would probably reliably hit... 10 to 20 CEP, or circular error of probability. That essentially is you draw a circle with that as the uh, measurements for it, and you 50% of the time it lands inside the circle, and 50% of the time it lands outside the circle. So it's a judge of, of your accuracy and reliability of your weapon. So that's actually not too bad. Um, tungsten was considered because it is, has one of the highest densities, almost three times as much as iron, and it has one of the highest heat capacities slash melting points, which you need to be able to survive reentry. Uh, it's also cheap and accessible. I have no idea really why Project Zeus uses a platinum tube, because platinum has a melting point of around 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty close to how hot it gets when things come into the atmosphere during reentry, but maybe it just seems cool. I know Cobra Commander has a nice shiny helmet. Maybe that's made of platinum, so it's in Cobra Commander's honor. You know, they're a pretty wealthy organization, so I figure, you know, why go for anything less than platinum? Add some, add some bling to your tungsten. Exactly. But there are some problems with these types of weapon systems, and this is the reason why the sky is not filled with uh, Project Zeus satellites. There was a, there was a high cost of spaceflight without reusable primary storage rockets. So Purnell thought that cheap and reusable primary stage rockets would be available technology pretty quickly uh, in the future to be able to put his weapon and the very heavy tungsten rods up in orbit. Um, that wasn't around during the 60s and 70s when he was thinking about this, but I know one of your heroes, Joel, Elon Musk, and his SpaceX program, maybe they'll be able to solve that problem for Cobra. I mean, they've been able to take on everything thus far, so I've got to think. They could do it. Maybe Elon Musk is Zartan. Ooh. Possible. Or Cobra Commander. In addition to that, uh, they have very slow fall times. According to 
uh, Richard Garwin, a very renowned physicist, one of the guys who came up with the first uh, hydrogen bomb design, he says that the type of uh, energy of this type of weapon is much higher, you know, the higher it goes up into orbit. So you need to get it up pretty high so it drops faster. But the higher it is up in space, the longer it takes to fall, um, upwards of six hours at a geosynchronous orbit. Zartan says that the rod travels eight times the speed of a bullet, which actually turns out isn't that fast when you're talking about objects traveling through space. Now, I'm not a math person, but according to my calculations, a bullet travels about 2,600 feet per second. That's eight times of that would be about 21,000 feet per second, or 14,000 miles per hour. Geosynchronous orbit is about 22,000 miles up in space. So it would take about an hour for the rods to reach its target. At maybe low Earth orbit, which is very well where this could be, that's about 1,200 miles up. It would be quicker, but it still won't fall as fast as the t the movie, which was like five seconds. One of the other big problems with this is to be able to accurately hit a target, you would need a lot of accoutrement to go with the missile or go to go with the rod. Uh, you would need some sort of a rocket motor, fuel, guidance systems to be able to make sure that it's actually hitting the ground. Because remember, these satellites are in orbit. They're traveling very fast around the Earth. The Earth itself is moving. So to imagine dropping something from your hand as you're moving your hand uh, across in a horizontal pattern. So your, your hand's moving really fast from your body, and you go to drop something. It doesn't drop straight down. It drops basically in the same path that your hand is falling in. So you'd have to be able to drop it just at the right angle and have it land through the atmosphere um, and be able to hit the ground. That's really difficult. The movie makes this look just like gravity can do all the work, but you would need something to be able to guide that down uh, to Earth. And the more things you put on that rod as it's coming down, the heavier it is, the costlier it is, and the less practical it is. And the most important thing about this was it overpromised the damage potential. The movie shows a rod hitting the ground in London, and London is wiped out in like 10 seconds. But more likely, what these weapons were designed to do was they were tactical weapons, pinpoint strikes against deeply buried targets. I've seen estimates predicting an 8,000-kilogram rod traveling at 7 kilometers per second would produce about 200 gigajoules of kinetic energy, which translates to about 50 tons of TNT. Now, that sounds like a lot, but remember, the bomb used against Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons. The largest conventional bomb in the U.S. military, the MOAB, or the mother of all bombs, as it's called, has an explosive force of about 11 tons. So the at best, the rod of God, the rods from God, is equivalent to a handful of these bombs, not a city-leveling force. So they really oversell what its potential is in the movie. It's a cool idea. It sounds like something exactly what Cobra Commander would do, but it essentially ignores what the practical physics would be to be able to do that. Furthermore, according to tests done by the Sandia National Laboratory, it turns out that most objects that travel faster than one kilometer per second, when they hit the ground, they don't penetrate the ground and explode. They liquefy themselves by their own kinetic force. They break up and disintegrate. So if you have your weapon, the higher you need it to get up into space so that it falls fast and hits the ground and destroys that type of energy, anything at, the, at that particular rate would simply just melt when it hits the ground. It wouldn't have anything to generate 
a stronger force. And finally, these weapons, once they're in space, they'll be spotted by radar and other sensors, and they're vulnerable to anti-satellite weapons, things that China is being accused of having. They're most likely they have ways to be able to take out satellites, and they probably wouldn't hesitate to take down a weapon that could supposedly decimate Beijing. So instead of China pushing their uh, nuclear suitcase button, they'd probably fire their anti-satellite weapon up at these individual satellites. It would actually probably make a lot more sense to just put a tungsten rod on a conventional ICBM and hurl that at your target instead of putting it into space. Because once you're in space, it has to travel long periods of time. When it's in orbit, there's long lead times. Uh, they're vulnerable to attack by anti-satellite weapons. So the U.S. Air Force has looked at using simply just putting tungsten-tipped warheads and not a nuclear warhead on a conventional bomb, and that would be more practical. It wouldn't be that same force we see in the movie, but it would at least be something that would hit heavily buried targets. Which is funny because Zartan was literally in charge of nuclear stockpile, and it would have been a lot easier than just to have kept 20 nuclear weapons from being launched at the outset, lied to the group, and then said, oh, wait, we still have 20, and we've got tungsten on them, and we'll blow up your city, and then just blow it up Lemon. That sounds like a better plot, but it's not as cool as what you saw <laughs> in the movie. And finally, one of the things that annoyed me was all of those like tungsten rods that are uh, still up in the, on the satellites. Like when, so when the rock hits the abort button, and it, for some reason there's an abort uh, button. His name is Dwayne Johnson. Excuse Tim. me, D Mr. Dwayne Johnson. Uh, Respect the brand transition. When 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 Mr. Dwayne Johnson fires the abort button, and I don't know why there's an abort button on this thing at all. It blew up the satellites. And the funny thing is if gravity also just takes, you know, gravity is the thing that launches these tungsten rods. After you blow up the satellite, something tungsten rods, which can survive reentry. Now you have dozens of tungsten rods floating in space. that are going to come down with the f gravity of the earth and hit random targets now uh, instead of, instead of hitting their individual targets. So I think you still got a problem. I don't understand why they're celebrating at the end of this movie. So this brings up a, a good point to refocus back on, on the movie storyline perspective and really ask why they were, why they did this. Why did they blow up London? There are plenty of movies where, and actually I found a number of websites they actually try to break down why London <laughs> appears to be the target of so many terrorist or you know city-ending attacks. If you if you go through movies, not just comic book movies, but in general, like any kind of terrorist attack, things like that, it seems like London is more often than not one of the targets. Or... Everybody hates Big Ben, right? So, well, one thing I found was uh, uh, Great Britain actually has very favorable. Um, tax breaks and financial incentives for um, production companies to film in London. So you often see that happening. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Right. But I thought for this movie, well, the, I, I, was, I was a bit conflicted when, when I did some research on this because when I first look at this as a G.I. Joe fan, I say this makes 100% perfect sense. This is pitch perfect in terms of what G.I. Joe would be what Cobra Commander would do. Every single episode was them seemingly going after some new weapon, some new resource that they could somehow you know, use to their own nefarious ends. So I thought, oh, of course, they would blow up all the nuclear weapons. They would uh, have everyone uh, without any kind of defense 
and then they would destroy London in order to get everyone to pledge allegiance. It's not that they would take over that they would just have everyone pledge allegiance everyone would to be Cobra. A, a, they would be like a serfdom that would rule uh, right. or a serfdom that would have to listen to Cobra commander's right. orders. Right. They'll all have to, you know, carry Cobra flags and, and things like that. You know, Cobra branded iPhone cases and stuff like that. <laughs> so anyways, so, so, so in that sense, I thought it was perfect. But as I was doing some um, research on the writers, so that was Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who again wrote Deadpool, which has been De- so celebrated. Yeah, Deadpool and Zombieland, which is also a good movie. And Zombieland. Well, so I thought this was interesting on a on a podcast by Jeff Goldsmith, the Q and A. They were interviewed. They were talking about some of their you know movie making history, and they actually noted that the destruction of London was due to an insistence by studio executives that London had to go. And so uh, here, here's a quote from that podcast. I hope that's, uh, that's okay here. But uh, basically they said, uh, be- because of the note, it's why we had to blow up London in G.I. Joe retaliation. We didn't want to blow up London because we were like, if you blow up London, 9 million people just died. That's not a win. It happened because, quote, We've got to raise the stakes. Hmm. So in one sense, it made perfect sense because it's a G.I. Joe movie. But on the other hand, you do have this factor in these movies where, oh, it's it's a nuclear bomb going to go off. The next movie, oh, it's five nuclear bombs that's going to go off. The next movie, oh, it's ten nuclear bombs. And then the next movie, Hmm. oh, it's an alien invasion force that can destroy the entire planet with one, you know, swift pushing of a red button uh, from Staples. So, and they actually said that this was some of the, this was one reason why when they did Deadpool, that they wanted to take it in a different direction, that they wanted Deadpool and his character to more accurately reflect different stakes. It's not just almost like the Avengers where Mm -hmm. you just have to find one world ending event or world ending threat to top the previous one that you had to kind of go in a different direction. This reminds me of the Mighty Ducks trilogy because in the first Mighty Ducks, (laughs) bear with me here. Nuclear weapons. No, bear with me a second. So the Mighty Ducks, although flying V formations is probably how B-52s fly. Sorry, sorry, different podcast. Um, No, so in Mighty Ducks, the first movie is a ragtag team of misfits that get together to compete in like a hockey league and they win. Then in the second one, they compete in the junior games or the like the junior equivalent of the Olympics against Iceland. And it's those huge escalated forces. And then in the third movie, you're like, whoa, what can they compete against? Like maybe they'll compete for like a, a global title or against in the universe because they keep escalating things. No, they just go back. They go to high school and they compete in a prep league against the varsity team. And it's like, oh, uh, that's not like – we know we beat Iceland. Right. So, so with, the, with the movie – they, of course, had to blow up an entire city because it's that kind of over-the-top movie and studio executives, it, it appears, need that kind of raising of the stakes to say, hey, we need some like big destruction to provide a big CGI moment to wow – you know, folks. I actually thought the graphics on that were actually pretty interesting. Oh no, I thought the, I thought the yeah the graphics, except for that weird when the tungsten rod hit the ground, you heard like a ping, which is <laughs> I don't know where they came with that sound design, but 
it was really cool to see the river get launched up into the air and everything basically was like a giant earthquake. It's similar to that, that ground shock that we saw when the underground nuclear bomb went off in Broken Arrow. Right. Yep. You saw the, the, the shock wave. That was really cool. I thought that was a neat idea. Now it's really hard to see that scene again and then wonder how technically it could work because – the movie seems like it tries to be smart by saying these tungsten rods will allow us to destroy things, but we don't have to worry about nuclear fallout. But they just don't work that way. They right. But well, I thought it, it I, looked cool. It certainly was like yeah. it looked cool for from a GI Joe standpoint. Right, and because I mean, you're used to oh, you're gonna blow up a city. Oh, you're gonna do that with nuclear weapons, right? And so this was. I don't want to say fun, but it was somewhat refreshing as a moviegoer to see some new take on world ending or city ending destruction. Well, we joke, so we joked about this earlier, but usually in GI Joe, when a helicopter explodes, you'll see a giant puff of smoke, but then out of that puff of smoke will be, uh, someone coming on a parachute. It's like, Hey, I'm fine. Everything's great. Like no one dies and rolls out of the tank. Yeah. Rolls out of a tank after it exploded. So everyone's fine, except for some reason in this movie, no one's fine in London at least. So there's no sense of like, there's consequences to, to the, Actions like the one of the U.S.'s closest allies is now gone. Like, well, not gone, but London's gone. A huge number of people have died, and at the end of this movie, there's a the president is given a speech somewhere. It looks like in the United States, and they're in front of a memorial. But it's a memorial to the GI Joes that died at the hands of Cobra. Not, oh my gosh, all of our friends uh, across the pond are a couple hundred thousand Americans just died. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So like one of those. Hopefully they'll have to deal with that in – well, if there's a sequel, they would at least touch on it and say, hey, guys, remember when London disappeared? That sucks. And that's where I feel – not to, to give too much away for Captain America's Civil War, but the last couple of superhero comic book movies I feel have been – I feel like they've they've paid attention to that inevitable conflict in – Comic book movies, the, colla- the collateral and comic damage, books, yeah. To say, if we keep trying to top ourselves, you then get into the situation where you you have to blow up the earth over and over again, or have some kind of threat, and you almost disregard the individual kind of person by person conflict and person by person stakes. Sure, I get that. It's why License to Kill is one of my favorite James Bond movies, even though it's got Timothy Dalton, who gets a bad rap for being uh, a James Bond. But it's only really about a drug kingpin who just wants to hide some cocaine in some gasoline, much different than world global uh, domination. So I I thought – but that would be a storyline that almost would not fit with G.I. Joe. Hmm. It was intentionally created to go all out. Every single time. So with that, that's a good transition point to pivot to what we've developed the last few podcast episodes where Tim and I go through what we think is the the, the worst part of the movie for us, whether it's on uh, a nuclear technical issue or perhaps uh, something in the storyline or the movie itself as a moviegoer. Uh, we've, we've been playing around with what to call this, but we're, uh, we're kind of putting it into the box of the nuclear offensive. So what was most offensive to you? So, Tim, uh, why don't you start? What, what stood out to you as the thing that you're most super critical about? The biggest thing for me was the idea that you can launch all of your nuclear weapons around the world all at once and then abort them with a push of a single button because 
Zartan plays gleefully with this idea of nuclear disarmament because there is a real world nuclear disarmament movement that's been around for a long time. The latest iteration of it is called Global Zero, and it aspires for a nuclear free world. It's one of President Obama's uh, – the reasons why he won a Nobel Peace Prize because he laid out this vision of something that may not happen in his lifetime, but it's something to aspire to. And the idea that it's, – it's funny. It's almost like an ironic twist for, against people like myself that – you work hard your entire life and you'll try to see a world with, without nuclear weapons through arms control agreements, disarmament, um, through cutting military budgets or trying to work through how you can do that at a pace that's safe in terms of strategy and deterrence. Like those are hard, complicated issues. But Zartan just did it in essentially like five minutes while playing Angry Birds and getting high scores. He's that good. Well, he did he's talk that, about he's, – he's that, he's that good at the things that I'm trying for and that was <laughs> – that was a little disheartening. Well, I will say I remember there's that scene where he uh, – Zartan, you know, in the guise of the president, goes to the bunker and actually has that conversation with the real president, also Jonathan Price. And they kind of have this back and forth about, oh, how dare you do this? You're doing all these horrible things under my name. And he actually goes back him and he's like, well, since I've been president, your approval ratings have gone up nine points. So – I'm. I look like you, but I'm doing all the things that you were afraid to do, and yeah. people love me for it. So. He's, I mean, he's literally he's a he's a president who um, mocks world leaders. He's someone who brings back torture as a, a matter of policy. He um, fires nuclear weapons at everybody. Um, he attacks and dis- disparages military veterans, and his. Poll numbers keep going up. I don't know if there's someone else that we know that sounds like that, um, but it's certainly fascinating. Good thing that's fiction. You Good know? thing that's it fiction. It doesn't reflect real life. So I'll say for my thing, um, certainly a lot of nuclear technical issues to to harp on, uh, you know, understandably. Mine, I would say, is Cobra Commander, which actually we, we didn't actually talk about him – too much on He's really podcast. not in the movie very much. He's really not in the movie. I mean, it's weird that one of the coolest scenes for him is actually when he gets broken out of prison. Because I feel like that's the that was the only time you really saw any kind of depth of the character. The rest of the movie, all he's doing is I, I mean, he's basically there to kind of transition the movement of Cobra from one point of the plot to the next because Zartan is stuck being the president. Mm-hmm. So there are some practical limitations on what he could do individually to launch these satellites into space to, you know, do all this stuff. And I was one of those kids who, you know, I love GI Joe generally, but I always thought Cobra commander was like one of those just cool villains in the cartoon series. And he was like the heart and soul of, in my mind, and again, I'm going off primarily the cartoon series. So if, you know, a diehard comic book person on G.I. Joe, I apologize. But, I mean, it was Cobra who really led all of the rest of the supervillains. It was, you know, he was the he was the Joker, I guess, mm-hmm. if you're kind of paralleling with another superhero world of villains. He was the Joker with all of the other villains kind of being second tier, at least in my mind. Now, there are some questions about, you know, Serpentor, who's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can get, you can get, Geeky, I'll get geeky here. Uh, you know, Serpentor and uh, Doctor Mindbender and, and Destro and all the Baroness and all these other folks. But I mean, in my mind, it was Cobra Commander at the end of the day who was leading the effort to go after 
the Joes to go after world domination and the fact that he was relegated to this kind of secondary, merely a plot device, really. You know, I I kind of understood it in the context of what the storyline that they had put together where there Mm -hmm. really was a lot of the president doing things. I almost wonder if from a um, movie magic point of view, they had reservations about making someone with a metallic faceplate uh, to really drive the mm-hmm. drama. Because, hard, to, hard to emote behind that. Right. But, I mean, you've, you've certainly seen Iron Man and, and a lot of other movies able to bring out, you know, a lot of heart or drama within even stoic-looking faces or mm-hmm. masks. So I'm thinking of Bane. Exactly. Yes. They should have hired Tom Hardy. I, so, I, want, it, I want it all. Yeah. Uh, we started a fire. Um, so I, I think... In my mind, it was understandable, but it was really a, a lost opportunity for me. I hope if mm. they are able to make a third movie now that most of the villains from the first and second movie are dead, Cobra Commander, of course, has to get away at the end of each episode. There's a, a, a good stock of characters they could draw from, but I mean, it's like trying to do a Batman movie without the Joker, or, you know, it's like, how could you do. How could you tell that superhero story without that counterpart, that okay. that villain? So I think I'm expecting if they do another movie that Cobra Commander is going to be uh, a serious part of that story. If they're not, I don't know. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do some final judgments here. Let's rate the movie. How many um, megatons out of five megatons would you give this movie? Uh, five megatons being you know the best, and one megaton being uh, pretty weak. Um, that's, that's an interesting, you're allowed to go 0.5 megatons in intervals. I think I would probably give it, I I don't know. I think I'd, I'd go back and forth between a two and a half and a three actually. Oh, that's a lot lower than I would have thought. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, of all the other like really good, you know, movies out there, I think. I think at a broad level, I'd give it a two and a half, three. As far as it being true to G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. I'd give it a four, four and a half. Because okay. I feel like, you know, you, you can harp on the specifics of the characters and how well they, they lined up. Me, I, I'm looking more, did it hit the spirit of G.I. Joe? And I figure, as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of over the top, kind of short on details. Um, not the greatest plot, but I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of what G.I. Joe was. It was, hey, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Let's have an exciting time. Much like Transformers. I actually enjoyed most of the Transformers movies, at least the first couple ones, uh, because I had my expectations set. I wasn't expecting them to rewrite Shakespeare. Well, soon you're going to be able to see the Transformers teaming up with uh, the G.I. Joes. Maybe we'll get to see The Rock and Mark Wahlberg uh, reunite. I think Mark Wahlberg is the star now of the Transformers movies. That's so it'd true. Be fun to see those guys. Um, and also a lot of the G.I. Joe names always, to me, sound like tr- uh, Transformers anyways. Like Roadblock sounds like it would be the name of an Autobot. Uh, Cobra, is, is a, that's, a, that's a car. That's an a Cobra point, Mustang. Yeah. Well, um, and the other funny thing is, I mean, if, you, if anyone's listened to the cartoon series, you know that there are a lot of um, actors mm. who split their time on lots of different shows. So there's certainly a lot of overlap. I would probably rate this movie – I think it started to me – again, I love The Rock. I will defend The Rock um, until the uh, – Dwayne Johnson. 
I will defend The Rock, Mr. The Rock, um, until my, my last breath. But this movie was, even if the other action sequences and the plot and stuff I really enjoyed, it probably may have been floating around a 3.5 megaton or a 4, simply from the action standpoint. But that Atomic Summit scene, for some reason, rubbed me the wrong way, and it dropped me down to, I, I think we're floating around a 2 megaton, 1.5 megaton. I don't recommend this movie to anybody unless they uh, would like to yell at their computer screens about this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do better on future episodes being able to separate my technical preferences for my narrative ratings. But this one, I don't know why. It just happens to be the one that gets me. And I apologize for uh, attacking your beloved G.I. Joe. Hey, I get it. I mean, not not so great in terms of uh, accuracy when it comes to nuclear issues. But uh, I don't know. It's a good time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Super Critical. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or guests, we have some uh, already in the works about maybe some uh, more nuclear experts as opposed to just fans of a particular genre uh, of movies. Uh, let us know and tell us what we got wrong. Uh, tell us if you want us to apologize for attacking your childhood. All of those individual things we can um, – we can we can we can work through this together. There are a couple ways to do that if you want to to contact the show. I've already mentioned our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercritical podcast. Like us on there. We put a lot of content there on a weekly basis, um, just with things that we do as part of our research or any sort of news that comes up about some of the movies that we cover or might cover. We're also on Twitter at nuclear podcast. Again, we tried to get super critical, but someone uh, is already out there and would, did not respond to my direct message requesting for me to be able to have it. Um, they don't deal anything with nuclear weapons or movies or anything like that, but that's how Twitter works. We're also uh, checking email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to everybody that's written into the show with all of their individual questions. And we're also now on YouTube, just right now posting um, on our Super Critical Podcast channel the audio, so it's another way for you to be able to download it. Uh, we're on iTunes and Google Play. That's a recent development now that uh, Android and Google Play is doing podcast but i think i'm gonna try to do some youtube videos i have some editing experience with with movies uh and film so i would love to be able to put together maybe a description of that nuclear weapon scene in this movie and have some pop-up video type graphics that go through this i'm working on that that might take a little while but if you have any, any ideas about that please let us know and again rate us and review us uh, if you like the show on itunes and google play uh, it's really important for us to be able to grow the audience. Just like us on there, make some comments on the review, uh, what you'd like to see, and we we really appreciate that. I think in the future, um, we'd love to be able to to grow the show and to find new listeners. Those are the different ways you can contact the show, and now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Oh, well, until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. 